Welcome to the World Beyond the Tale, the Page a Day American Gods podcast. I'm your host, James, and today we're reading page 127. Him. He turned around in the driver's seat and looked at him, carefully noting his face, his hair, his clothes, making certain he would know him if he met him again, and turned back to start the car to find that the man had slipped from his mind. An impression of wealth was left behind, but nothing more. I'm tired, thought Shadow. He glanced to his right and snuck a glance at the Indian woman. He noted the tiny necklace, the tiny silver necklace of skulls that circled her neck, her charm bracelet of heads, and hands that jangled like tiny bells when she moved. There was a dark blue jewel on her forehead. She smelled of spices, of cardamom and nutmeg and flowers. Her hair was pepper and salt, and she smiled when she saw him look at her. You call me Mamaji, she said. I am Shadow, Mamaji, said Shadow. What do you think of your employer's plans, Mr. Shadow? He slowed as a large black truck sped past, overtaking them with a spray of slush. I don't ask, he don't tell, he said. If you ask me, he wants a last stand. He wants us to go out in a blaze of glory. That's what he wants, and we are old enough or stupid enough that maybe some of us will say yes. It's not my job to ask questions, Mama G, said Shadow. The inside of the car filled with her tinkling laughter. The man in the back seat, not the peculiar-looking young man, the other one, said something, and Shadow replied to him, but a moment later he was damned if he could remember what had been said. The peculiar-looking young man had said nothing, but now he started to hum to himself, a deep melodic bass humming that made the interior of the car vibrate and rattle and buzz. The peculiar-looking man was of average height, but of an odd shape. Shadow had heard of men who were barrel-chested before, but had no image to accompany the metaphor. This man was barrel-chested, and he had legs like, yes, like tree trunks, and hands like, exactly, ham hocks. He wore a black parka with a hood, several sweaters, thick dungarees, and incongruously in the winter, and with those clothes, a pair of white tennis shoes, which were the same size and shape as shoeboxes. His fingers resembled sausages, with flat, squared-off fingertips. That's some hum you've got, said Shadow from the driver's seat. And that's some page we got. To start the page, Shadow makes mental notes about the forgettable god, but finds that as soon as he turns away, he can't remember anything about him except a feeling of wealth. And this is one of those clues that seems to point us to Pluto. But when we meet the man again, I think we'll be able to make some other conclusions, maybe? I don't know. I honestly don't really remember much about the forgettable god, and believe me, the irony of that is not lost on me. Shadow officially makes Mamaji's acquaintance, and I absolutely adore the idea of her wearing a, a skull necklace and the head and hand charm bracelet. Just that combination of things, it's, it's such an obvious on-the-nose sort of thing. But remember also that Wednesday has a silver tie pin depicting the World Tree Yadrasil on it. So maybe this is a common enough thing amongst the old gods. Maybe it identifies them to one another if they're traveling... I don't know exactly, but it does seem a little bit strange that at least two of the characters have some other representation of their past incarnations. She's certainly the most perceptive character we've met thus far, while others have called Wednesday out for being a huckster or some other sort of con man. Mamaji's really nailed him pretty hard against the wall here. Wednesday is looking for a single final battle, one last fight with everyone going out in a blaze of glory, though she doesn't seem to voice an opinion as to why. She maybe doesn't consider the why important, or maybe she just is still trying to take it all in and try and figure out what Wednesday's up to. 
Still, she's correct, and we'll see the results of this battle in about a year and a half. For now, though, just remember this conversation. Shadow insists that he's paid not to ask questions, but also implies that he's not being paid to think too deeply about things either, and this is definitely to Wednesday's benefit and Wednesday's advantage. Someone who won't ask questions also may not try to prevent things from happening. Of course, we know that Shadow's got a pretty decent moral compass so far, time in prison for a violent crime notwithstanding, so I guess we can see how it all shakes out in a year and some change. Shadow has another brief conversation with the forgettable god and is unable to recall what was said just moments later. The feeling of wealth and forgetfulness really do point to Pluto, though. I had read a theory before about a few different gods based on the Vega scene, but it seems pretty hardly leaning into the Plutonian reference here. In the lands of Hades, the Greek iteration of Pluto flows the river Lethe, which leads all to drink from it to forget. So it could be related to that. Only by drinking the waters of the Lethe could the death could the dead be reborn into the world again. And there's something to be said for how this relates to Shadow's journey in the novel, but at this exact moment, I don't know that we need to discuss it too deeply. The description we get of Alvis is rather Gaiman-esque in its construction, just the the brief pauses and asides to kind of confirm what we're reading. I, I honestly can't pull any examples off the top of my head or after kind of flipping through some other books, but something about the construction of the sentences seems familiar to me, and I don't know if it's just that I've read this book enough times that it jumps out at me as being one of those very Gaiman-esque touches, or if there's other stories where he's used similar techniques to describe people, but it definitely rings a bell for me somewhere in there. Regardless, Alvis begins to hum and shake the car a bit. I wasn't able to find a point of reference to this in the original Alvis Mole, but the story is basically a call and response of Thor asking a question and Alvis answers it in the following stanza. So it's it's not exactly a complete tale in the way we would think of other mythologies, like the Greek mythologies that I read growing up, or even Gaiman's own Norse mythology. But the translation I read was at sacred-texts.com, and it's a quick read, definitely worth checking out if you want a little more context for who Alvis is. We will meet him again quite a ways down the line. I think it's closer to the end again, but it also could be an entirely different character because I have not read the book in a couple of years. Get in touch with the show at theworldbeyondthetale at gmail.com or on Twitter at worldbeyondpod. You can support the show on Patreon at worldbeyondpodcast, I think. You'd think I'd have this down by now. At patreon.com slash worldbeyondpodcast. Thank you to Julian Granganage for his version of St. James Infirmary Blues, which we use as our theme. And thank you for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with another page, and remember, only the gods are real.